not on this just particular day, but every day in Southern California when I was an eight-year-old, all I remember is clear blue skies. My life was absolutely amazing at age eight, and nothing ever seemed to go wrong in my life. That's kind of how I felt about it. I lived an ideal life. My whole life consisted of three things, and this is really not too far off. (laughs) Atari. (laughs) Can I get a witness? Of course, I didn't have the 2600. My friend did, but I went to his house all the time. Atari, Legos, and thirdly, my most prized possession, my super rad silver chromoly Team Murray X20R BMX bicycle. My life revolved around my bicycle. I mean, I'm not exaggerating to say that school for me was just kind of in the way till I could come home and get on that bike and and ride for literally hours and miles away. Nobody would ever let their kid do that nowadays. I loved that thing. For me, that bike was my life. I rode it all over creation, setting up ramps, bunny hopping curbs, for those of you who know what bunny hopping is, cruising the hood with my BMX gang of three The world was my oyster, and I had this sense of everything being right with the world as an eight-year-old. I had confidence at that time. I had this sense of purpose about me. I just kind of knew in my heart that nothing would go wrong in my life, and it would be awesome. That's kind of how I felt about it. So so when I was looking this week for uh, some things that kind of typified this, I found this uh, commercial, this TV ad from the 80s where my bike shows up. Team Murray X20R. And so this kind of typifies how I felt as an eight-year-old in Southern California. Watch this. That is me, right there. That's how I felt about my life. That's how I felt about the sense of confidence. In 1981, age eight, nothing wrong in the world. Same year, age eight, 1981, Southern California. My demise in Cub Scouts came at Pinewood Derby. It was one of those first blows to my sense of confidence and my sense of who I am, and, and, and I, I kind of went into the Pinewood Derby thinking, I've got this licked, just like I know how to ride my bike all over creation. I've got this. So I, I went into making my Pinewood Derby car. And in case you don't know what a Pinewood Derby car is, in Cub Scouts you get this little block of wood, just this regular block of wood, and you are supposed to shape it and make it into a race car, and you get axles and wheels. And it's a gravity-fed, a gravity-powered uh, racetrack that's just like a tiny soapbox derby, basically. So this was a big deal. This was a big deal. So what I did is I went off and I started to set my mind on my dreams for the Pinewood Derby. And it sort of revolved around this idea for me that, that I have confidence to do anything I wanted to do and it was automatic I was going to win. And so in my head, in my head, my perception about this car was something like this. IndyCar, racing stripes, intakes on the side, and of course, Stickers with sponsors like Atari Legos and Team Murray. (laughs) In actuality, my car, and this isn't too far off, ended up looking kind of like this. (laughs) 
I had no plan. Looking back, the problem was, I didn't even put it on paper. You'd have thought, even as an eight-year-old, I would have drawn some pencil marks on the side so I knew where to saw and cut. But I didn't even do that. I just sort of sketched it in my mind. And so when I got into the building phase, when, when one slice here and another sort of slice there didn't come out straight, it became clear that my mental picture was obviously not going to happen. And so I just kept twiddling away. <laughs> just kept twiddling away without much direction until my block ended up looking sort of like a semicircular blob on wheels. Just like that. You couldn't really tell what was front and what was back. Looking back, I know the problem was that I was careless. I was overconfident. I didn't have the right tools. I didn't have much of a plan. Hadn't even written on paper, even scratched on the side what I wanted to do. It was just a mental picture. I just kind of thought it would happen. I just thought it would happen. (laughs) And turns out, for Pinewood Derbies, swagger doesn't win. (laughs) Engineering, a plan, something written down, and the right tools to make it happen. At the end of Matthew, in chapter 28, as the resurrected Lord was leaving His first followers so that they would follow Him and by the power of the Holy Spirit take on His his job of making disciples, He said, I want you to make disciples. It is the imperative command there. Make disciples. No doubt about what's going on here when He gives them this work. And then He says, Going, baptizing, teaching. Those are the the participles that come under make disciples. This is how you do it. You're going, you're baptizing, you're teaching to obey. So, So these disciples went from there with a very clear plan. They knew what their life was about at that point. There were clear directions for carrying out the work. And the work, friends, the work that we are in is people building. The work we are called to as believers in Christ who have salvation is people building. And it turns out, just like in Pinewood Derbies, when it comes to making disciples, it doesn't just automatically, accidentally happen. You don't accidentally make disciples. That's not how this works. If you go into people building in a careless matter, sort of whittling away without much direction or plan, the product often ends up looking like a semicircular blob on wheels. And not so much Jesus. Oftentimes if we go into the people-making business, if we go into making disciples without much of a plan, guess who we're discipling people in the image of? By default, it's us. Which is why you have to be careful which is why you can't be careless. It's why you have to have the right tools for the job. And, and Paul wanted Timothy to have the right tools for the job, to be clear about the direction of his life and how to make disciples in a way that would mean those disciples would make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples so that you could sit in these seats and know salvation in Christ. That's the task. That's what we're called to. And that's why we're studying 2 Timothy, so that we can learn to fan the flame of the gospel in our lives for the sake of others to know Christ. So jump into verse 14. 
Paul's instructions to Timothy are clear. He says, remind them of these things. Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. This is clear. He's giving him instructions. There are tools for the job here. He says you have to remind them of the gospel. This is the first few blanks there. Remind them of the gospel so that they don't have word fights that hinder witness. Remind them of the gospel so they don't have word fights that hinder gospel witness. We talked a little bit about this last week, but let's, let's go ahead and recap here for a bit on verse 14. Up to this point in 2 Timothy, Paul has been telling Timothy over and over, remember this, remember this, remind them, remind you, remember, remind. This is the sixth time it's happened here in 2 Timothy. And he's up to this point telling Timothy, you have to remember two things. Two things. You have to remember, number one, the content of the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ made intentionally a place on earth. For us to know him. And he came and lived a perfect sinless life on our behalf, covering our sins, so that instead of the wrath of God poured on us, which we would have deserved otherwise, he covers us and gives us a right standing in a relationship with God. That's the gospel, the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection that made that happen. And number two, we have to remember the people who have communicated that gospel to us. Those are the first two, first two tools in the toolbox for, for Timothy here up to this point. Remember the gospel and remember those who communicated it to you. And now, Timothy, now, Timothy, he's saying here, remind them. It's your turn to do the same for others. Those two gospel and communicate the gospel through people are the things that are the tools so far. The, the third one and fourth one here we'll get to in a second. He says, remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words. He says, charge them before God. Take this seriously because eternal destinies are are at stake here. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. In this verse here, Paul coins uh, a new word. He coins a new word. And and he puts together uh, a couple ideas. And he calls it, in one word, a word fight. That's what's translated here quarrel about words and an interesting thing about the way he uses this word he uses it as a verb which is to say that he's saying no word fighting paul is telling timothy you have to remind them no word fighting if they spend all their time word fighting about things that don't pertain to the content of the gospel and fanning the flame of the gospel in others then their witness will be damaged Because those who hear those word fights, those who hear those word fights, it says it right here, will be ruined. He also says, this is interesting, at the beginning of verse 14, it says remind them. That word remind them there is in what we call the present continuous sense. It's a verb form. It just keeps going. It's happening and it keeps going. It has a continuous sense to it. So, So he's really saying keep reminding them. Not just like a one-time thing. You have to keep doing it. Because as we've talked about already in this series, we get distracted from the main things. So keep reminding them, no word fights, because that will hinder the witness of the gospel. True story. A number of months ago, I uh, met somebody for the first time, and uh, this person must have somehow heard about me from mutual acquaintances. Um, I was preaching through Revelation at the time. So immediately this person, 
upon meeting me, said, Oh, that's you. Immediately I thought, Oh no, here we go. Relax, Scott. Breathe. The person said, Let me ask you something. Do you, do you really think that we are already in the millennium? The way this person asked it and looked at me, you would have thought I had three heads. What I should have said at the time was, well, I actually don't really care as much as you seem to. But if pressed, I think the Old Testament and Jesus speak of the coming of the kingdom and its establishment already in a, in a way that's a hermeneutical filter. And I would have thrown out there that kind of big fancy word. A hermeneutical filter, when you put that together with the figurative use of numbers in Revelation, means that we all eagerly await Christ's second coming to finish off the evil one who he's already bound on the cross. That's what I think, but I didn't say that. I just said, yep. (laughs) And his eyes sort of got big like, I didn't know people like you existed. So we chatted for a bit and we tried to kind of come to uh, some agreement about the things that matter most. And uh, we had a pleasant little conversation and moved on. That was it. Here's my question. What if a non-believer had been in that room? Mercifully, they were not. But what if a non-believer had been in that room hearing that conversation? I promise you. I promise you that person would not be thinking. What an instructive and helpful conversation about deep and important questions. You know, I would, I would love to know more about those theological questions that they are discussing. Most likely they're thinking something, and I'm only slightly paraphrasing. Most likely they're seem, thinking something like, what is wrong with these weirdos? I don't understand anything they're talking about. Here, I just thought Jesus died on the cross so that I could know him. I don't know what all this is about, but I don't get it. At the end of his prayer in John 17, Jesus, in verses 22 and 23, he says this to his father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that, that they may be perfectly that they may become perfectly, completely one, unified, on the same page, about the same mission of fanning the flame of the gospel. And then it says this so that for the purpose that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. For the purpose that they would know that I was sent by you, Father, to love them and to die for them. That's what they have to know. It doesn't say so that, so that. These things that are outside of the gospel that do not save are answered for us this side of heaven and that my followers can be right and clear about all those things. Now believe me, I love talking obscurantist theology as much as the next guy. 
But I see nothing in Scripture other than the kind of heart of God coming through the person of Jesus so that sinners can be saved. He says, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We have committed the sin of discipling discipling people into these man-made systems of doctrine that divide Christians and that hinder the movement of the gospel. It's not God's fault that division happens. It's not the atheist's fault that division happens. We are culpable for this if we allow it to happen. We are culpable for allowing the centrality of the gospel to not be the center of our lives and of this fellowship. And Paul knows this is of utmost importance. Timothy knows that this is utmost importance. So Paul is instructing him, here are your tools. Take these with you in the battle. And the two tools that we're talking about today that he adds to our toolbox, the two tools of the disciple maker are to cut the word straight and to avoid empty words. Those are the next couple uh, blanks in your outline here. Cut the word straight and avoid empty words. This problem of of word fighting that was going on in the church at Ephesus there is why we need to learn to cut the word straight and to avoid irreverent babble. Two tools. Look at verse 15. We're going to go just through the first little part of 16 there. It says, Do your best. Be zealous about presenting yourself. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as one who's been tested and showed to be worthy and, and true. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. What a great thing that is. To be a worker for the sake of the kingdom and you don't have to be ashamed because you're caring about the gospel. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then secondly, he says, avoid irreverent babble. He gives these two instructions here. We're going to focus mostly on uh, the cut the word straight part of it, the rightly handling the word part of it, and we'll touch on avoiding Babel later. I'm going to give you some color to this cut it straight idea. Uh, by going to seminary for a few minutes, I want to teach you a Greek word. And by the way, this is something that almost all seminary profs say never to do in your preaching, uh, but we're going to go ahead and do it because uh, we're rebels. This is about as rebellious as I get in my life. This is the word we're going to try to teach you here, and it comes right out of uh, verse 15 there, orthotomeo. Orthotomeo. It says this in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And this is what's involved in being an approved worker who's not ashamed. Orthotomeo, the the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth. We're kind of keying in on this today, especially because it's a sort of filter for the whole passage. So in this verse, this word, you may recognize the beginning part of it, the prefix. It Ortho is like orthodontist who straightens teeth. Had mine for seven and a half years. Orthodontist straightens teeth. If there's a, a doctrine that is right and good and, and it's been right and good and core throughout the centuries of Christendom, since Jesus came, we call that an orthodox belief. It's a right belief. This word that Paul uses here to talk about handling the word is a word that was used of a doctor making an incision on a patient for surgery. 
an architect who would be designing a house, putting together blueprints, a construction worker who was making a straight path or even laying down a road, (laughs) or perhaps even hmm, a tent maker. Paul was an apostle, a missionary, a church planter, a leader of leaders. But you may also know he was a tent maker. He used his skill in making tents as a platform for the gospel. It was a marketplace platform for the gospel. And so he plied his trade as a tent maker to give him this platform for ministry. Now, now Paul could have used other words here. There are other words available for him to use, more commonly used for talking about cutting it straight. He could have said peritemno, which is to cut around. He could have said suntemno, which is to cut short, like to make concise. But he, choose, he chooses orthotemeo. And I can imagine that in his trade as a tent maker, Paul was quite used to having to, to cut the materials exactly straight. Measuring it out, using a straight edge, putting, putting the knife right along it to make sure that it's straight and it's even. Because as he's putting together this tent, he has to think about the size of the tent, the scope of the job. How many people are going to be in this tent? Is it going to be temporary? Is it going to be permanent? What's this dwelling used for? What's the best material, perhaps, that I might use for this particular job? Paul might be thinking for himself. So, so for Paul, to measure twice and to cut once was really important. If he doesn't cut it straight, if he doesn't do it straight, the tent doesn't work. If he doesn't build it carefully, the tent won't stand up when the winds blow. Paul wants Timothy to take that kind of care in handling the truth of the gospel and explaining the word to those under his charge, to those he was discipling. These people who were in Timothy's care, some of them were being led astray by false teaching. Wolves in sheep's clothing pulling away believers. So Timothy needs to ask the same kind of questions that that Paul might ask about his tent making. What is the, the size and the scope of this this false teaching. How many people is this affecting and how is it affecting them? What's the, the theological stuff going on? How is it that this false doctrine is, is stealing away from the gospel? And, and what truth from God's word do I use to combat that? If you're a disciple maker, you've got this tool for the job and you know how to cut it straight. Paul is pleading with Timothy here. Use God's truth with precision. Measure twice. Cut once. And when you do, cut it straight. Now when we say this, (laughs) we do not mean that we just chop Scripture up into parts. That's not what we're talking about here. 2 Timothy 3.16, which we'll get to in a couple weeks here, we'll cover soon. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's useful. It's helpful for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness for the purpose that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of Scripture is helpful because it's God's Word. But not all of Scripture, not all Scripture is helpful in the same way 
in every situation. Some scripture works better for believers facing marriage issues or relationship issues. Some scripture works better when we're speaking with non-believers who don't know Christ. Cutting it straight is something that's super important if you're going to be serious about the task of making disciples. You've got to train yourself in godliness. You have to know the Word. You have to know how to dissect it, to rightly divide it. What parts of it fit with what? What is the need of the person that the Word can meet here? Can you do that? Or do you have, you have to go ask somebody else, I don't know how to tell this person this. I don't even know where this is. If you're there, get in the Word so that you can cut it straight. Now, I want you to think of cutting it straight like this. Because it's not chopping up. It's like this. I want you to think of it like cutting meat from a beef cow. Go with me for a few minutes. The butcher has the job of making sure that the best part of the cow is cut off for use. You, you, You may use brisket for one thing. You may use ribs for another. You may use... Chuck, you may use ground beef, you may use the strip for something else, you may use filet. I don't know if you ever watched a good butcher, but, but a good butcher always uses really razor sharp knives and sort of wields them with a sort of fluid ease and almost grace to them, really. Cutting here, slicing there with great precision and skill so that the outside parts, perhaps the chuck, the foreshank, the round, are cut away and set aside for their use until what's left is the best part, the short loin, the part in the top, toward the back. Whenever you go into a nice restaurant, the most expensive steak in the menu is always a filet mignon. Some of you are like, I'm not sure. (laughs) I do like the porterhouse because it's huge. The filet is the best part of the cow. It's the least fatty part in the short loin area. That's as good as it gets when it comes to cuts of meat. Some of the other parts are less expensive and they they have more fat on them. They may be used for different kinds of applications, but they don't work so well as steak. You can't take other parts of the cow and use them as filet. Now you're all thinking, let's go to lunch, Scott, hurry up. (laughs) Friends, the gospel, the core content of the absolutes that make someone a believer, the gospel is filet mignon. It's the map to the pearl of great price. It's the entryway into the kingdom of God. And yet, we live in a world where there are lots of Christians walking around, screaming at the top of their lungs as if sirloin is a filet. Talking about things that are more like ground beef than focusing on the core content of what has to happen if someone's going to become a disciple. So cut it straight, friends. Cut it straight. 
If you don't know how to do that, if your knife isn't sharp, if your sword isn't ready, get your head in the game. Get your head in the game. Some of you don't even know there's a game going on, honestly. You live your life as a believer, as if there's no game going on. You're sitting on the sidelines. Other people are involved. They're the ones that are being used of God, their skills, their gifts, their abilities, in ways that mean their head's in the game and they know the Word. If your head's not in the game and you don't know the Word, go home and repent. And ask for God to give you a passion to know His truth. Then you will begin to learn to cut it straight. Then you will learn not to preach cubed steak as if it's filet. If you, don't, if you don't cut the word straight, your ministry of making disciple makers, your ministry of making disciples runs the risk of leading people into ruin, he says here. If you don't handle the word of God with care, your leadership, your ministry, your disciple making, it runs the, risks, it runs the risk of making followers of you and your ideas, however interesting or even involved in Scripture they may be, You run the risk of discipling people into those things instead of the core of the gospel that makes someone a believer in Christ. When you cut it straight and you avoid Babel, the two tools of the disciple maker, what happens is you grow godly people who grow godly people who grow godly people who grow godly people who grow godly people so that you can sit in these seats today worshiping Jesus because somebody else knew to cut it straight and to avoid irreverent Babel. Somebody else before you was faithful and held the content of the gospel as the filet. Even if everybody around them is saying, sirloin is interesting and wonderful. You're sitting here going, "Ah, what I have is better. Paul is imploring Timothy to cut it straight. Because if you don't, these empty words, this irreverent babble will spread like cancer and cause ungodliness in people's lives. That's the next couple blanks there. Empty words spread like cancer and produce ungodliness. Verses 16 to 18 say this, but avoid irreverent babble. Literally there, that's, that's empty words. Uh, note that they are empty because they are empty of the content of the gospel that saves. Being right about one's view of the end times or the number of hours in a day in creation or a flood that was global or that was local or the identity of the Leviathan in Job's Psalms and uh, Isaiah, maybe even Genesis and Revelation, depending on how you read it, not going to save people. Those become empty words when they don't have the content of the gospel. And so he says... Avoid empty words, for it will lead people, it will disciple people, in a sense, into more and more ungodliness. And their talk, this word here, talk, is literally, it's a singular word, word, logos. And he's using this word intentionally as a contrast to what he talked about as the word of truth at the end of verse 15 there. He's saying these are empty words because it's a contrast, it's the opposite of the word of truth that I just told you about. So their babble is empty because their talk doesn't have the gospel, which means that it kills. And that's the opposite of fanning the flame. Fascination with empty words and meaningless controversies. Gossip and division. 
and caring too much about non-gospel doctrines are like water to the flame of the gospel. If you're not careful, you don't avoid such battle. That will spread like gangrene, Paul says. And then he says this, those who talk like that are Hymenaeus and Philetus. In 1 Timothy 1, he says of Hymenaeus, we don't know anything else about Philetus. He says about Hymenaeus, Paul says, I have handed him over to Satan so that he may learn not to blaspheme. Clearly, this is serious stuff that Paul's talking about here. I don't think we should make too much of this just because he names a couple people and start keeping written lists. But it was clear. It was very clear that Paul was not afraid of anybody whose behavior or whose doctrines hindered gospel witness. I mean, this, this is a guy who called a spade a spade. He was a man who stood up when it came to protecting the purity of the gospel and fanning its flame. So he says, these two are not fanning the flame. They've swerved, verse 18. They've deviated from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. It's probably a reference to the, uh, the false teaching of 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to look up that background. He says, they are upsetting. These two are upsetting. The, literally, that word for upsetting is the same word that Jesus uh, described Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. Upsetting. They're overturning the faith of some. Paul's saying, if you don't, if you don't cut the word straight and avoid babble, the result is like a cancer. Paul calls it gangrene, which, which sets in when the, when the blood supply is blocked off to a certain part of the body so that the tissue starts to decay. And with gangrene, if you don't get to it early enough, it will spread. It will spread until it kills. And if you're not careful with the word, with our mouths, with the gospel, we spread disease. Spiritual sickness, friends, is contagious. And if we are disciple makers, we have a responsibility to do something when we come across ideas that, that pervert the gospel and that hinder its witness. Disciple makers are not afraid to nip false teaching in the bud before it grows. Friends, we've been given, we've been gifted a precious, eternal relationship with God by the resurrected Christ Himself who's lived in people by the power of the Holy Spirit. His resurrected life in them, through them, for you, for someone else. So let us together pray and work hard to achieve among this body of believers, the goal of fanning the flame of the gospel. Let us together pray and work hard, doing our best, as he says there in verse 15, being zealous as a congregation, a body of believers, so that instead of highlighting matters that do not pertain to salvation, we highlight the precious pearl, the amazing gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his perfect sinless life that makes up for our sin and restores us to a right relationship with God. That is a gift that we've been given. And a gift is given so that we can give it away to others in the manner in which it's been given to us. Let's pray, friends.